The scripture today is 1 John 5, 13 through the end of the book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Did you catch the shift? Just in the beginning verse, move from belief to know. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, everything that you do as a follower of Jesus, whether it's easy or simple for you or more challenging and a pushback to your natural instincts, whether it's prayer or decision to be generous or the songs that we just sang, everything that we do in response to God is part of how we move from knowledge to assurance, from belief into know. When we hear the scriptures read, when we study them on our own and with friends, when we sing what we believe as we just did, when we pray, both asking and praising. I appreciated that uh, Mike's prayer was mostly one of thanks today. I also appreciated the mini lesson on Job. That was good stuff. John's point about prayer in this particular is a different one than that. 
both prayers, both the kind that Mike modeled and led us in this morning and the one that John's talking about, are part of how our very beings are moved from whatever strength of belief they are currently to assurance, to knowing that we have that life. And as John was talking about life, as we're listening to the scriptures read, I wonder if you, uh, perhaps like me in certain... I grew up in several Christian circles at the same time. I went to Christian school, I went to church, went to Christian camp. And they all dealt with this differently, but I was led to think of eternal life as heaven. John's talking about it as right now and heaven. He's just happy for you to remember the complexity of the scriptures when he talks about those things. John's inspiring letter, and if it's not inspiring, that's my fault because his letter is supposed to be inspiring or Mike's fault. Although you read it in a pretty inspiring way, I think. We'll call it my fault if you're not inspired. Is that we love one another as a response to Christ's work on our behalf. But what do we get when we respond to his love by loving one another? We get the assurance of faith, which speaks peace to our hearts like nothing else can or will. Looking at verse 14, he says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Are you confident that he hears you? And John's not talking, John's not attempting to make a a binary point. He's not making as much of a theological point as he's making a sermonic point. What do I mean by that? He's not saying that God doesn't hear you when your prayers are not fully according to God's will. He doesn't just stop listening when your prayers are imperfect, which most of the time they're probably going to be, mine too. But he is making the point that um, when we pray according to his will, our sensed connection to him is greater. Does that make sense? All of your prayers are heard by him. All of your prayers according to your, to, that are according to his will, so those are two different things, you'll sense your connection with him more strongly when they line up with his will. And John's just assuming that we're asking for things. I love that. But it was very convicting to me this week. The way that I've been praying this week was a little more like the way that Mike prayed for us this morning. That's a good way to pray, but it's not the only way to pray. How are you praying uh, for your neighbor, your actual neighbor? This is where I was convicted this week. How are you praying for your church? And for some of you, this is just going to be encouraging. You're like, I can tell you I prayed this morning for the church, and this is what I prayed. Good. I'm so glad. How are you praying for your parent, your child, yourself? Are you asking for something? And I don't mean like, an iPad, I mean perhaps growth in character or that they become a follower of Jesus or that the Holy Spirit would facilitate a conversation about those things. I was partic- it was particularly challenging for me. One of those categories was particularly challenging for me to determine 
how can I pray for this individual in light of God's will with my own limits of knowledge of what God has in store for them? You know what I'm saying? I want to give you a moment, frankly, because it's a beautiful day. Pick one of those, neighbor, child, parent, church, and ask the Lord for something in their life. Healing, repentance, growth in character, peace, reduction in anxiety, assurance of their faith. But when I, give you, I want to give you a moment because perhaps, like me, you sometimes stumble into certain kinds of prayer and you miss the opportunities to ask the Lord on behalf of your neighbor. So I'm going to give you a moment to pray for one of those categories. As John wraps up his sermonic leaflet, I read that in a commentary and I was like, that's just odd, but I get it. Like, it's just a lot less formal. It's a lot less sequential than a lot of the other books in the New Testament. And the reason I keep repeating it is I misunderstood something in this passage this week because I was treating it like it was Paul talking instead of John. Maybe you never make that mistake and you just automatically understand your Bible. That's terrific. I need a little help and encouragement sometimes. John's encouraging us to believe, and as that belief grows, especially through community and action and worship, belief becomes no and be assured. And he's expecting us to do this in community. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. First of all, before we talk about what is a sin that leads to death, John is expecting this community, ours. He didn't picture us. He probably assumed Jesus was coming back within a few decades at the most of his time, but he would not be surprised to know that this letter is beneficial to us. He isn't surprised now. He expects us to be capable of talking to one another about our blind spots and sins. And the reason I, I lead with blind spots is we can sin against people without intention. And those matter too. And he's fully expecting that this spiritual community not only can do that, but will do it. He was expecting them to do it. We're going to continue uh, going through 2nd and then 3rd John, and he's actually going to call somebody out by name in 3rd John. And man, that just would have been so awkward. This happens a bunch in the New Testament where, and it's probably 30 people max. Someone will be called out by name, and sometimes they'll be called out, and someone else will be told to, like, help them handle it. And I just think that would have been so uncomfortable to be sitting there. But the entire New Testament and John here is expecting us to be capable of that kind of community where we actually care for one another and are able to talk with one another about maturing in love. When I read uh, verse 16 and 17, actually for a couple of days this week, I was 
thinking that John was helping us understand something about the effects of sin in community. I don't think that's actually the point he's making. When he talks about sin that doesn't lead to death, he means in a Christian who's willing and able to repent. And one who is uh, a sin that is leading to death would be, as best we can guess, and this is God's, God is the judge of this, not us, but as best we can tell, there are people that don't repent. And we don't need to go to them more than once or twice or three times. I'm intermixing my understanding of the Proverbs and some of the rest of the New Testament in here, but I believe John's point is, while we are supposed to confront one another in spiritual community, if we've confronted someone on their sin, they're unwilling to own it, they're unable to repent of it or unwilling to repent of it, we don't need to continue persisting in going to them. I think that's the point he's making. And then he says, and don't pray for someone to not be repentant, which you would never do. How lovely. Here's a part of the scripture. I don't know one of you that would ever pray for someone that way. But sometimes we can get really angry with folks. We may or may not pray like a psalmist in anger. John wants our prayers to not stop there. And this is... We talk about this a lot because most of my sermons and the sermons that others preach are based upon books of the Bible here. A basic human question that Christianity addresses first indirectly, then directly is, can people change? Do people change? John's answer to this is unequivocal yes. How? His answer is the power of the Holy Spirit operating within spiritual community. I have said this before. I have no idea if it sounds compelling to you or not, but it's firmly true in light of the love of God revealed in the work of Jesus Christ. A Christian should resist saying, this is just how I am to someone else in relationship. And the nuance of that is small, but it's very worth it in relationships. When we're tempted to say that, especially with really old, hard-to-deal-with tendencies in our life, what we say is, this is how I am, but I am committed to working on it some version of that, right? There's not a huge difference between it's just how I am and that. But in relationships, it's actually a remarkable difference. John's encouragement as he concludes his sermonic letter is to believe and to do community while your assurance grows. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. It's a very interesting turn of phrase because in the first section, John's talking about someone who has said to Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you lead, your Lord. And in the second section, he's talking about Jesus being the one truly born of God whose work reconciles all those who trust in him. 
We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's us, if you're a follower of Christ. But he who was born of God protects him. That's Jesus protecting us. And the evil one does not touch him. By keep on sinning, he is not talking about leading a perfect life, though we are commanded to lead a perfect life. And then we have to remember what does the Bible mean by perfect? It means mature, not means, is. The Bible is saying, oh. get off the tangent. When John writes, anyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning, he's talking about what? elsewhere in the New Testament is called a lifestyle of repentance. When we learn that our way of relating to spiritual community, to our spouse, to our children, or parents, to our friends, co-workers, and neighbors is not actually loving, we're willing and able to stop doing it. And it takes a little while, and it's challenging. One mediumly painful lesson I'm learning this year is uh, I'm not really as funny as I wish I was. And sometimes I will try too hard. And what I mean by that is I can hurt people's feelings. And it would have to be a spectacular joke to hurt someone's feelings just a tiny bit and be worth it. And I'm going to say 99% of the time, I'm not even close. So I'm working on it. And I have some friends that are willing and able to be like, ooh, ah, that, was, that was not a good one. You should have kept that one to yourself. And I'm really thankful for them. The middle of verse, verse 18 reminds us that Jesus protects us. Many of you are very sensitive to fear. Pray this verse into your being, friends. Those of you that fear is a regular part of your life, Take verse 18 and pray it into your being that you might not only believe but actually know that Jesus protects you. Screwtape Letters is a fictional account of an older demon named Screwtape writing to a younger demon named Wormwood. C.S. Lewis wrote it. And when the man that Wormwood is attempting to influence, becomes a Christian, a fog comes around the man and the, and the influence is reduced. Now that's not, we, we have no idea what it looks like compared to that. We know a lot about angels and demons. I'm not going to bore you with that because the text is not about that, but the text is about Jesus protecting you. I love that image. There is an evil one. He is limited by space and time and much more profoundly by Jesus who's not limited by space and time. The enemy is not an opponent of Jesus Christ. He is on a different level. He is an adversary and he has no more power, not one inch, ounce, or bit of energy to affect the world more than what Jesus allows. Which is scary in the book of Job. It's part of the reason we also have the book of 1 John.
John is expecting us to believe and for that belief to assure us and turn into knowing. He's expecting us to do so in community while our assurance of faith grows. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And this is, again, where we remember what's John doing. He's speaking in an inspiring way. Are there pieces of the world that are not under the sway of the evil one? Of course. Doesn't it sometimes seem like the whole world is under the sway of the evil one? John's expecting this to inspire and assure our hearts of his love. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. While John's goals are that we rest in the light of Christ and therefore be love one another, he is also reminding us of the intellectual credibility of the faith. How many intellectually styled words are in that verse? Listen to it again. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And that eternal life is your past, because God's grace is prevenient. Eternal life is right now, his Holy Spirit assuring your heart in love and maturing you. And it's the future, which is fully secure in him. Show of hands, who would like for me to try and talk over the airplane? Who would like for me to wait? Oh, great. Bill, I've always wanted to know if you can tell the kind of airplane it is by the engine sound. I know you heard me. Yes, you can tell? Okay. What kind of plane is that? Thank you. While John's overall goals are different than an intellectual argument or a sequential argument, he does still sprinkle these things into the letter because they are good to remember that Christianity is credible and true and rational, especially as it describes the world more rationally than any other system of rationality. I was talking with a friend recently who's not a follower of Jesus, and she said, um, isn't it just a lot of people's opinions about God in the New Testament? And I was like, oh, gosh, how much time do you have? No. <laughs> These people all knew one another. It's historically verifiable. They all talk with one another. The imperfectness of the community actually attests to the historical reliability of the text. And she thought that was interesting. And, you know, in those moments, I don't know about you, but I have to like really try and assess how long does she want to talk about this. 
So we talked about it for a little while, and we're going to talk about it again. And then John reminds them something that is all over the New Testament that I hope you're familiar with, that I hope that the Holy Spirit has convicted you on because it's one of the more day-to-day opportunities of the Christian life, which is to resist our over-desires. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. There are things that we trust too much, right? Just naturally. And it's sold to us with incredible skill. And that skill is only growing. When I first got into youth ministry, oh man, 22, 23 years ago, it was estimated that kids were seeing about 300 ads a day. And I thought that seemed like a lot. It's in the thousands now for all of us. And most of those ads, either indirectly or directly, are telling us to trust something more than we should. example I used a few months ago was the kind of soap. There are nine promises on my body wash just on the front. And they're over, I think it's called like a rooted something. So it's promising what the Bible promises, which is to give me stability. There are things that are inviting us to trust more than our good for our soul. The trickiest ones are the good ones that become over, the good desires that become over desires, right? Parents, those of you that are parents, the life that we want for our child is a terrific example of how we can fall into over-desires. What do you actually want for your child? Because sometimes what we want is for them to have a better life than we had. Some version of that, either financial or um, stability, if we didn't have that. And that is a good desire, stability. Financial one may or may not be, depending on all sorts of things but it can become an over-desire. And then we can feed it as though our role isn't to lead them up as a follower of Christ, to learn to love him and others. There are things that we trust, there are things we obey and follow that are leading us away from the flourishing life that God has for us, which, among other things, Includes thinking about, conversing with friends about, and then resisting over desires. And as you do that, and as you sing, and as we pray, and as we continue in spiritual community, what's happening is we are assured that we are His and He is ours, and that that is life. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you are a good Father, patient and kind. We praise you that you have given your word first to the early church that they might believe in Jesus Christ that he is true God and eternal life. We also praise you that we have it, that we might be encouraged into this spiritual community, into love because of your 
great love for us. Holy Spirit, would you strengthen us as we continue to sing and then leave this place that we might love you and neighbor well in the places you have placed us. Amen.